Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. And so now you have this chasm where we'd have these weird conversations around what machine learning features should we build for Grammarly business? And neither side could understand what the other person's context was to come up mm. with an idea. We struggled with that for a little bit until we really just put people in a room and, and it did exactly that. We said, here's the user research, five critical communication challenges within a company. You know what technology you have. You know how organizations work. Get together and just talk about, you know, your peanut butter, your chocolate. What can we make here? Let's have a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we have a conversation with Heidi Williams, head of engineering at Grammarly Business, about building a startup within a startup. We deconstruct some of Heidi's favorite startup within a startup moments with Grammarly and Grammarly business. We also talk about different approaches to identify adjacencies within your current user base, how to source new ideas and encourage innovation in your engineering team. We also get into the execution and maturity pathway of new products, merging the new product with the business, navigating dependencies, and how to determine the end game of your product. Let me introduce you to Heidi. Before Grammarly, Heidi served as VP of Platform Engineering at Box, founded West Diversity and Inclusion, and was co-founder and CTO of Techwitable, a confidential platform addressing issues of bias, discrimination, and harassment in the workplace. Heidi was at Adobe for 17 years, and most notably, was a founding engineer on Dreamweaver, which democratized web development in the late 1990s. Enjoy our conversation with Heidi Williams. Welcome, Heidi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. We've got a lot of topics to dive into. The first one that, that you and I have talked about a little bit is the idea of building a startup within a startup. I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, one of your favorite startup within a startup moments or projects that you helped kick off. Can you introduce us to, to a first project here? Sure, sure. And, and maybe just for, for starters, the product that I'm working on is Grammarly Business. And so for Grammarly, which has been a longtime product and an AI-powered communications assistant for individuals, this is the first time that we're building a product for teams and organizations and selling it through a B2B motion. So that's what, what we're working on. And what's really great about it is that we actually get to take advantage of a lot of what has been built before us. So there's this huge, powerful engine that people are using for writing and communication across the world. And so we can leverage that as a like an awesome foundational building block to get started. But we can also be really nimble. We don't have to, in this new product for Grammarly business, we don't yet have things that need to be backwards compatible. You know, when you're building the very first version, you don't have a high load of maintenance. And so you can be very nimble, you can be very agile, and you can also maybe break the rules a little bit. So maybe just one example, which I thought was really fun. So Grammarly has always been a consumer 
business. And mm-hmm. obviously B2B and enterprise is a little bit different. And so in a consumer world, maybe the way you get data is looking at a million data points and then sort of pulling out observations from there and thinking of what to build. But what I love about B2B software is that you can ask 10 people a question and use that to drive your roadmap or to drive your future development. And I think that is a sort of one way that we're kind of breaking the rules about how we do development. So really specific example, we wanted to build an analytics dashboard for managers and admins to see how Grammarly business was being used on their team and in their organization. And instead of spending a a huge effort to, you know, figure out the data store and all the charting and how to visualize everything, we decided that what we do is take a manual data dump of the usage in their organization and just build a PDF and go show it to 10 customers and ask, would this be useful? Is this what you would like? And so we were able to shortcut a whole bunch of development and get really, really quick feedback on a real view of their data with with real charts, but in a PDF as opposed to in the product. And I just love that kind of adaptability and creativity to to figure out a different way to build things. And and that gave us the confidence to then build a fantastic analytics dashboard that really met their needs. The PDF as an MVP is such an interesting and fast moving idea. With doing something like that, that optimized for speed and the ability to get feedback really quickly from more B2B oriented customers. What were some of the learnings from those conversations, like early conversations when you presented, here's kind of a PDF of what this dashboard could look like that we could build. What did you learn from, from those early conversations? Yeah, I mean, part of it was just trying to understand why do people even want dashboards? Is it because they want to make sure that it was worth the money to pay for Grammarly business? We actually found some interesting insights that what people want as managers is to find opportunities to coach their employees. Where are the areas that they need to improve? So it's not just about ROI, but also about how do you make it actionable so that they can help their sort of use Grammarly in an assistive way to highlight opportunities for growth for their employees and then coach them to improve. So I thought that was a really interesting insight that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise if we just said, here's the data, do you like it? We actually could ask them, well, what do you want it for? What are you going to do with it? With some of those insights from presenting a PDF as sort of this MVP dashboard, I was wondering how some of those early conversations then impacted the final product, I guess, like the first actual digital product that you built for folks to use. So when you actually went, went from PDF to the next stage, how did that those conversations impact that? Yeah, yeah, great question. So for sure, we took those insights and realized that there were definitely two use cases for this analytics dashboard. And so we were able to support both of those and think about for maybe someone who's more of a buyer that we needed to have some sort of estimation of an ROI calculation, how much time has been saved or how much faster are we at at writing something or how many communications were improved. And at the same time, for people who were managers, they needed to have a different kind of chart that was more of a view around how individual team members might be using it or maybe not exactly how they're using it, but whether they have even started to use it or not, or maybe need a prompt to start using Grammarly. And then also to see trends of things like what kinds of tones are people speaking with at a team level over time or what kinds of suggestions are most likely to be accepted or not accepted by the individuals. And so having that idea that it needed to be actionable really influenced how we presented that information in the dashboard. Did you feel that those early insights like really helped accelerate releasing like the right features or or helping provide like a more relevant and effective product for the, the customers of Grammarly? 100%. I mean, I think anybody who has taken on a, a data project understands that 
you sort of build and model the data one way. And then when a new use case comes up of, oh, I need to filter it by this dimension or that dimension, maybe you have the wrong data store. And now you have to do a massive migration, maybe build new tables, maybe build new indices and things like that. And so I think by understanding the full set of use cases, even if we weren't going to implement them all on day one, really helped speed up the design to be flexible mm-hmm. for the future and not cause any rework in in kind of rejiggering the data model and, and how we would do those queries. So I think it was really helpful to get that bigger picture in order to make a practical first step that wasn't going to cause more work in version two. Totally. It, it makes me think of, we've had a couple of conversations with folks sort of in like the AI ML space. The development cycle for that can be really, really long to come up with a, a final model. And so to me, just so interesting to sort of expedite the the use case you know here is like a, a version of what this could be like is this what you're looking for to almost get a, like a pressure test of here's the final output that we're looking for or that we think we could build um, is that useful what do we want to tweak so it almost gives you a sense of like what the end goal is before you even start the actual building process and validating that which i think is super interesting yeah for sure and i think another thing that helped speed up all of that is that we were able to share all of those insights with the engineers super early on so not in mm-hmm. a waterfall kind of way but just everybody engaging with the problem super early so that then in development, engineers can picture exactly what end users want and they don't have to go ask product managers, how is this supposed to work? How is that supposed to work? They can sort of feel the use case themselves and imagine what those people would want. They're faster at making decisions on the ground to build something that's really going to work for for people as well. So I feel like you get those sort of minor efficiencies around decision making further along in the development process as well. Totally. So I want to I want to zoom out a little bit to to sort of the macro topic of of building a startup within a startup to try to dive into some of the ways that you approach it so that somebody listening in may be able to be like okay I can take you know Heidi's approach here and apply this to to building or launching our own sort of new initiative maybe from like a, a grassroots level so when you were are thinking about like the beginning of of either building out a new idea here or starting off small with with a new product or a new feature or a new program, what prompts this? Like, why does a company or an engineering organization typically need to to spin up a, a startup within a startup or some of these like smaller initiatives? Yeah, I think for Grammarly in particular, and actually I do think that this is a pattern that you kind of see in the industry. A lot of companies, of course, are one product, one company for a very long time. And there's a little bit of risk in, in that. And in fact, there's at some point, you know, your growth is it could slow over time. And so when you introduce multiple product lines and, and lines of business and ultimately even different targeting different audiences or different go-to-market motions, it really increases the overall growth potential of your company. And so a single product company's end up with sort of feature creep where they just add more and more and more and more to the product as opposed to diversifying into multiple product lines, which, you know, instead of one product that meets everyone's needs, you can actually become more specialized and build more tailored products that might actually have more value for a new audience or have a new market that you can go after that ultimately increases the overall growth of your company. And so thinking about Grammarly business in particular, I think Grammarly is a fantastic writing tool for any kind of writing. It's super broad and it can be useful in a ton of use cases. Grammarly business really focused in on professional writing and the kinds of writing and collaboration that you're doing within an organization or maybe with your organization out to customers and things like that. And so being able to focus and narrow in on that use case, you can now build something a little bit more kind of domain specific or more intention oriented and and thinking about the particular outcomes people are trying to drive, as opposed to having a very broad communication assistance, you can you can go deep and you can add 
unbelievable, amazing new value when you have that kind of focus. And so I think we've definitely seen that. And it has really helped the company feel like we have huge new growth opportunities by being able to go deep in this professional market. Could you bring us into the conversation or the decision to start building out this particular business line? Because I think one of the things that I always feel like I have trepidation around is like that start of like, let's, you know, we're, if we're a single product company, how do we make the decision to become multi-product or even begin to test the viability of something like that? And so can you bring us into sort of that introduction or, or start moment where the either the idea or opportunity was identified and then the decision was made for, let's start to invest resources and people behind building out this? Yeah, I think for Grammarly and, you know, I hope all companies would be able to do this, but maybe we were in a particularly lucky spot. I think I mentioned earlier, consumer companies are great with having a million data points. And I think one of the things that we identified was as we started to really segment our user base and who is using the Grammarly product for individuals, we recognize that a huge percent of people were using the product at work because their Mm -hmm. domain was not a personal email domain, it was a work email domain. And so seeing that, that there was this opportunity of, wow, a huge number of people are really focusing on using this product at work in their, in their daily jobs seemed like there might be an opportunity to investigate and explore interests in, in what are the kinds of different communication challenges at work where it's not just an individual writing something, but maybe a communication challenge for a team. And so we just started uh, exploring. I think we're lucky also we have a very avid fan base. I think our our customers love us, which is awesome. And so we could go out and ask them and, and understand what are the particular challenges you have at work when you're writing or with your team. And that gave us some ideas of features that we could build. And then we were able to go test them. So I think honestly, it does start with looking at where you know, every company has an idea of where their product is being used, but there's the halo effect of where else is it being used that we Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily intending. And when you look at those, you might end up finding opportunities to expand and create something a little more custom for that audience. I think the harder challenge is to say, you know, we have this audience over here, we're going to go after a completely different audience and domain. That's a harder stretch for companies, but sort of finding the adjacencies within your current user base is a great opportunity, a great place to start a new idea. I love the idea of finding the adjacencies because I think you're so right. Like the hidden opportunities there exist and you have to go discover them. For you all, is is the the practice to do that going out and asking customers and having sort of that listening structure in place? Um, or was, was there another way that you were able to identify some of the adjacencies for some of these new products and, and initiatives? Yeah, I think first we did just sort of look at the data and then we did go out and talk to customers. I think Early on, we did not have a huge user research department. So we actually started building up a user research department to help us with getting at some of some more of these questions and be able to figure out, you know, whether it's a, a diary study or a journal or a survey, different, different ways of, of understanding the market. And so we were really able to double down on that, do more of that than we had previously, recognizing that that discovery of a new market is a different motion than what's the next feature I should be adding to my existing product. I think it's a good distinction. The discovery of a new market is a different motion. Can you help us understand maybe the the difference between the two? Yeah. So I think as an example, when you're looking at a feature, you already have people who understand your product and they can imagine what else they would want it to do. They have current needs. And I think it's very relevant for folks. Sometimes when you're looking at a new market, people don't even know that they have a problem that needs to be solved. And so you have to assess not only is there a need there, is there a problem that needs to be solved, 
but also the willingness to pay. I think when you have an existing customer, they're already paying for the product. And of, of course they want the next feature, but it's really important looking at new markets to understand not just does this need to exist, but will people actually put money behind it? Is it a viable business, which is not the mm -hmm. same thing as whether it's a viable product. I love that. I'm the next, the sort of the next sort of topic that I wanted to get into was like, how do you operationalize this? And so I wanted to dive into decision-making of how do you determine if this is something that you should build versus not. But I think to, to ask like explicitly, how do you source ideas or sort of the process to identify like a new market to get into? What does that sort of ideation process look like to build out something like this? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's certainly a part where I think it can happen in multiple different ways. And, and I, and sometimes the best ideas come from maybe three different places at once. And you realize several people are kind of thinking the same thing and you can kind of put those, those efforts together. So, um, in this case, I think it was a combination of looking at our data, trying to understand our consumer base and understanding not just professionals, but also that in particular, we had a really big spike of people in customer success, marketing, HR and engineering who were using our product in professional settings. So there's sort of an onboarding survey where you can tell us a little bit about your role, things like that. And so we use that information to tell us that, wow, we seem to have an outsized use in particular functions in companies. And so then that gave us a, a jumping off point to go do market research and sort of talk to those types of professionals and understand their challenges. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that data leading to a few people, you know, sort of spending time and exploring those things, and then sort of putting together a business case opportunity to say, how big is that market? If we were able to just capture some small percentage of it, you know, is that actually an interesting and viable business? So I think it does come from yeah, sort of what you were saying, a few people having an idea, but then backing it up with data and research mm -hmm. and sort of getting permission to take the next step. Like, is the idea interesting? Yes. Go get more data. Okay. We have more data. Is it still interesting? Yes. Go to the next part, test it with real people. Yes. Okay. And you, you sort of keep steps along the way and having checkpoints to make sure that you're still onto something or maybe give you the opportunity to pivot if you feel like maybe something's a, a little bit off about some data that you gathered or something like that. Totally. When you first made the like go no go decision around investing resources and people behind i guess the beginnings of of building out a, a product here what was the deciding factor was it it was it was it just the aggregate of all of those sort of inputs i'm trying to think of like the moment where we're like okay let's formalize this project here's the thumbs up what was the go no go conversation like yeah yeah so i think in in this case i actually there was one piece that i forgot which was that besides the the sort of market opportunity, we also had to say, well, what is different about this product? It's not just yeah. a bundle of licenses. What are the features here? And so we actually did have one engineer who had an idea around style guides, which was the very first feature. And so I think I just wanted to mention that by having a sort of culture of innovation and encouraging people to be curious about what problems we could solve, one engineer sort of went off and very quickly built a prototype to sort of show the art of the possible with this idea around style guides. And so I think that combination of the style guides and the testing of the market and figuring we can do something here, let's actually test whether we can build this feature and, and bring it out into production and, and sell it. So the, I think the decision-making there really was to look at the opportunity and to feel excited about this particular proof of concept that there might be something there and, and then start investing just a little bit more to see if you can get to the next step and, and if people actually start to buy it. I love the theme of, of having sort of these like really, really quick proof of concepts, both from like the PDF concept to spinning up the style guide concept. I'm wondering how, like, how do you help create room for folks on your team to 
experiment with solving some of those newer problems within your your user and customer base? Like, how do you, how do you help create that room and that culture and environment for people to be able to do those types of things to spin up some of those MVPs, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, because we actually have a large intelligence organization, where in that group we have analytical linguists, computational linguists, applied researchers, machine learning engineers, there's sort of something really built into the culture of their job is to go research what's possible, see what the state of the art is out there, come up with their own ideas, maybe publishing papers, but all in the lens of how would it apply to our product and our, you know, not is it cool, but does it actually help solve a, a user problem? So there's a little bit that's just baked into our culture, but we also do things like hackathons, which end up being a great investment. So instead of just doing a 24 hour hackathon, we do a one week hackathon, which is fantastic mm -hmm. to see, you know, how people have had ideas in the back of their head, finally bring those to light within a week and, and get a team together to build something really compelling. We just had our most recent one in October and it was so, so, so cool to see what people had built and, and really, yeah, like I said, giving you new ideas and sort of getting you excited about what else is possible beyond what we had already decided we wanted to work on. And I just think in general, I, I'm a big fan of having those moments of ideation and brainstorming collaboration. I like to share whatever problems are top of mind in my head with people and get them to start mm -hmm. thinking about them plant seeds and have them see if something comes up with it. And, you know, it just happened the other day that I had one idea and I was excited about it, shared it with someone and they added on to it and made it 10 X better. And now I'm sort of thinking, Oh, how can I pull an engineer out for a few days to see if we could get that working? Because it would be super exciting to sort of take that, that forward. So I think it's a combination of hackathons, building it into the culture, and then just making space when you feel like there's an opportunity and just sort of, yeah, carving out time for, for engineers to, collaborate, brainstorm, ideate, get together and build those moments into your year. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that conversation looked like? So when you're when you're sharing the problems or challenges that you're thinking about, how do you present those or share those? Like, is it a formal part like included on your agenda for that meeting? Is it like a broader team meeting? Is it a one on one? I feel like it's all of those things. I, <laughs> I feel like for sure with certainly with my managers, I think I really do have a, a recurring item, which is, okay, cascade what I'm hearing and seeing from across the organization. I'm involved in a bunch of things, whether it's part of the Eng leadership organization or whether it's part of 2023 planning and roadmapping, mm -hmm. or whether it's our track of work around InfoSec and, and building user trust and, and all of that. And so I have a, a, yes, a recurring agenda item for all of them to cascade what I'm seeing around the organization and, and also be able to ask questions of them of like, well, what are you seeing? And then those ideas come from both places that I'm, I'm sharing, mm -hmm. but also I'm sort of pulling information to know what are they seeing on the ground and, and maybe what challenges uh, they're having. And then with engineers, I do skip levels and I love to do the same thing and say, you know, find out what they're working on and maybe connect dots with other one-on-ones that I've had. And then also uh, in team meetings as well. So I have a, a meeting for all of my end managers to get together and have conversations. We also have all hands where we like to have people demo what they've been working on. We bring things like user research or data science investigations uh, that we've done and share those insights to the team. And then later we'll say, okay, let's take those insights and research and then put our engineering minds to it to see if we can do something with that and come up with ideas of how we would solve those problems for users. So, uh, so I guess it shows up in a, in several different ways. The, the communication like mechanisms, the way in which you're able to distribute critical information, whether that's like the, the cascading of key priorities across the organization to also removing some of the silos in terms of the projects that people are working on to help 
create some more context around like what's possible within the organization, I think is really interesting. Because I'm thinking of like the neural network of the company and, and the synapses that are kind of connecting everything. I think it's really interesting to see sort of the, those pathways in which you help create clear information, uh, democratize more of the information that's available so that people can connect the dots and and help serve sort of supporting the company in the in the right direction. Yeah, 100%. And in fact, I think back to the idea of being a startup within a startup, one of the interesting challenges is that you know, our whole company has been consumer for a very long time. And there's a certain way of doing things and a certain way of thinking about those problems. And of course, a large intelligence org that's been thinking about that individual communication. And yet, but they've never thought about teams. And, mm-hmm. and here we are with Grammarly Business, we hired a bunch of people with B2B and enterprise experience that know a ton about organizational structure and team dynamics and thinking about enterprise readiness and what that means, but they don't necessarily have an intelligence background. And so now you have this chasm where we'd have these weird conversations around what it, what machine learning features should we build for Grammarly business? And neither side could understand what the other person's context was to come up mm. with an idea. And so I think we were that we struggled with that for a little bit until we really just put people in a room and, and it did exactly that. We said, here's the user research, five critical communication challenges within a company. You know what technology you have. You know how organizations work get together and just talk about, you know, your peanut butter, your chocolate, what can we make here? Let's have a Reese's peanut butter (laughs) cup, you know? And so that was awesome to just, again, put creative problem solvers in a room together with hard problems and ask them to apply what they know to a situation. And you do get that great knowledge sharing and, and learning across domains, which has been really important. I mean, I think we need the whole company to become enterprise ready uh, platform first. We're also building a developer product at the same time. So there's a lot of sort of organizational transformation that needs to happen as well if we're going to be successful with, with all three product lines. Mm -hmm. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Uh, that meeting is sounds so fun to to be in. How do you facilitate a meeting like that? And I'm curious about as somebody maybe who is like organizing or arranging or leading the meeting, are there certain like communication norms that you introduce or are there questions that you provide people in the meeting or ahead of time? Like what's sort of the invisible architecture that helps create that innovation conversation to bridge the gap between chocolate and peanut butter to, to come up with the, the solution. Yeah, yeah, I think we've done it a couple of different ways. I will admit, I'm a little more ad hoc than most people are probably comfortable with. But it has an interesting side effect that if I sort of go into a room and say, I don't really know what I'm doing. But I think if we just talk, I think some cool ideas will come out. People don't worry about saying something a stupid idea they will Mm -hmm. actually just share their dumb idea because I've already set the bar really low. (laughs) And so I feel like that is actually a fun way to just sort of say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't want to wait till we have a perfect way to do this. Let's just do it and see where we get and we can do better next time. I think there's other times when you have a more, a bigger group and maybe you don't know folks as well, you should probably be a little bit more structured. And so I do rely on my user research and design partners who are really good at organizing 
um, how do you discover do discovery and ideation and brainstorming in a in a structured way? And so, you know, we've used things like Miro and FigJam and had a set of questions that you ask yourself and focus on the the problem and the pain, and then you sort of move through into into solutions and ideation after that. And so, uh, so we've done it both ways. I think in this this meeting, I was pretty ad hoc about it and just said, here's the user research, here's five teams, go into breakout rooms, here's a Google Doc write down your ideas and let's come back and share them. And I think Mm -hmm. later we did one that was a little more structured. Okay, here's the user research. Let's now have a a facilitator for each group that really is is doing it in a more structured way. So we, we mix between the two. Definitely. I, I think what I'm wondering is like if if people in that conversation sort of like have maybe ideas that are in conflict with each other, mm-hmm. like how do you set up the communication norms for, for, I guess, because to me, this sounds like a really healthy and productive meeting. So I'm just wondering if like, you know, in the battle of ideas or in the, the conversation of ideas of working through those things, like how do you create like that healthy culture where that, that dialogue and the, the idea jam is positive, successful, and everybody feels better having participated in it? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I feel like it might, it's almost easiest in ideation and brainstorming sessions where sort of the rule is the kind of, um, oh, what's it called in, uh, uh, improv. Like if you've done Mm -hmm. improv, you always have to say yes. And you can't say no. And so in ideation and brainstorming meetings, I think you sort of set that norm that every idea is a good idea. We're not saying no to anything. We're not shutting anything down. Everything is additive and we will just make a huge list. We don't need to make decisions about which ones we're going to implement or not. That's not the point. The point is just to open the space. And so Mm -hmm. I think setting that up up front and just saying everything is going to be additive. And even if you have two ideas that are conflicting, they're both great. Let's just continue the conversation. And and maybe there's a way to implement both of them together or have them, you know, compromise in some way, but we can figure that out later. Let's just make sure we get all the ideas out there first and go wide. And then later we can figure out a different way to narrow in again and, and make decisions. I love that. How often do meetings like this get hosted? Is this a quarterly conversation? Is it a monthly? Uh, is it like held on the calendar once a week? Um, help me get a sense of the cadence there. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on where you are in your development cycle. So if yeah. you are in the super early days of a startup within a startup, you might even want to have an opportunity for that kind of open conversation twice a week. You might mm-hmm. want a whole hour. I don't think I can swear, but we have, I feel like one of the things we've used is called a, a talk about Mm, uh, <laughs> uh, S et cetera, uh, hour <laughs> twice a week. And it's really for anybody to bring up anything that's on their mind and be able to have a healthy dialogue about it. And, and so that's something I've used when you're in the really early stages of figuring out what the heck you're even building later on when you're, you're got a little bit bigger team, then probably those ideation sessions are happening maybe quarterly, but then at a particular feature, you may decide that that feature team wants to do it as they're kicking off the feature. So you can sort of find the the cadence that works for you, depending on the size of your team and sort of how much you have matured, you know, zero to one is different than one to 10 and very different from 10 to hundred. And so they're maybe uh, not as frequent when you're in the one to 10 stage. Definitely. I, the label of that meeting, uh, sounds like there's a lot of attitude behind that. That's fun. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think again, like setting the expectation that there is no such thing as a dumb question. Just ask it all and yep. make sure it's a great way to get aligned really, really quickly. And and I, it's one of my favorite things to do for really early stage startup ideas. Definitely. I wanted to transition to a little bit of a different phase of the startup within a startup conversation, specifically around the execution and maturity of the idea and the product. 
I was wondering if you talk a little bit about what sort of that execution or like maturity pathway has looked like, or if there's like any type of like framework or structure that you've observed in some of the different examples that you've experienced. Yeah, yeah, I think we definitely experimented a lot with how we operated as a team. And so early on, we were using something called ShapeUp, and it's a, a framework that was published by Basecamp, and we were very interested to experiment with it because I, th I think we sort of gotten a little bit of analysis paralysis fairly early on, which was a little unusual. And so ShapeUp was super helpful in getting us into a rhythm of shipping and mm -hmm. iterating. And so the whole idea behind it is that instead of, um, I mean, it's still agile, but the whole idea, instead of estimating things and making a quarterly plan, you instead say, what version of this thing can I ship in six weeks? So you don't estimate, you decide what your appetite is for a particular project and you kind of work for six weeks as a whole team. You put all of your project ideas together. You have a betting table, you stack rank based on your appetite and how many engineers you have. And then you are super focused for six weeks, no interruptions, and you just deliver some version of that thing with the goal of learning and iterating. And so I think it was hugely helpful to getting us to iterate very quickly and get into this rhythm of shipping things so that we could learn from them. That was super, super valuable. Uh, it didn't scale super well, super well with the team. And there were sort of two reasons for that, which I, I thought were interesting. One was that the whole rest of the company is on a quarterly planning cycle. And we were doing essentially every shape up cycle is six weeks plus two weeks. So it was eight weeks, but a quarter is 12 or 13 weeks. And so when we had dependencies on other teams, we all didn't always know those at the beginning of the quarter, we might be in the middle of the cycle, we weren't sure what projects we would pick in the next cycle. And so that caused a little bit of friction working with other teams. And that's one of the differences of a startup within a startup, you have dependencies on other teams. And so that caused a little bit of friction. But then we also recognized as the team grew from seven to 25 people that an engineer might be working on style guides one cycle, analytics the next cycle, and maybe an infra project the third cycle. And so there was no sort of domain expertise being built up with engineers and a very broad distributed ownership of the whole system. Everyone had to keep a lot in their heads. And so ShapeUp kind of broke down for us because we really needed each of those teams to have their own charters and to have their own roadmaps within them. They still could have chosen ShapeUp, but we wanted to make sure that we had dedicated teams to team features or foundational things or enterprise value. Uh, and so we ended up splitting that up a little bit, but we, it, it was interesting to be able to experiment with your development process to optimize for a certain kind of outcome at, at each uh, phase of your, your journey in the product lifecycle. Such a great story of the the whole change in execution. Uh, I love that. My next question then is, is sort of how the startup within a startup merges like so I guess like this merge moment within sort of the greater the greater business. And so we're kind of transitioning more towards like, I'm labeling it as like the exit pathway, but like, I'm sure it probably looks differently depending on what's going on. But so as say the the project, the program, the product becomes more mature, what does that merge and integration with the business look like as you get towards the later stage of it? Yeah, yeah, we're not quite there yet, but I do have some ideas and I don't know, maybe I'll I'll say them before my team has ever ever heard my my musings on this subject. Maybe it's a little dangerous, but we can we can label it as a hypothesis and you are totally free to change your mind. <laughs> yeah, and maybe and maybe I'm just, and there are many different ways that it, it could come out, but one of the things I think about is that there is a lot of value when you are a startup within a startup to incubate as a small group so that it you, not a silo per se, but have a dedicated focus that 100% what we wake up and think about every day is Grammarly business. 
And it's okay for the rest of the company to not be thinking about it 100% of the time uh, because we are and we're, it helps us move quickly and, and sort of make decisions and, and be hyper-focused. And you don't have to make hard decisions like, do I do the thing that makes the most revenue for the company, which might be working on consumer, or do I think do the thing that is being incubated and could be potential huge future revenue? And that that trade-off is really hard if you're not isolating a group of people to just be focused on the new thing. So that's mm-hmm. sort of what how we've been operating is that we have our own team, which is just Grammarly business. We take advantage of other services and whatnot, but mostly we eat, sleep, drink Grammarly business. I think in the future, if you really want enterprise to be in the DNA of the company, I think you need to distribute the development across the company in an interesting way as well. And so I think your organizational structure at any moment in time, again, is optimized for one outcome or another. And Mm -hmm. so I could imagine in a future that Grammarly business, each of the engineering teams get distributed across the other engineering teams. Like maybe our growth team becomes part of the consumer growth team. We wouldn't call it the consumer growth team at that point. We would just call it growth. Or maybe the feature team features become part of the way we do all of our intelligence features and they're not sort of in a separate organization uh, called Grammarly business. Maybe the foundational elements are things that benefit Grammarly for developers and the rest of Grammarly, and that also becomes a company-wide team. And so I think you sort of can shape your org structure to optimize for different things, and you will definitely get better transfer of knowledge if you embedded all of the Grammarly business thinking elsewhere and vice versa if we, you know, you get closer to the like machine learning and intelligence side of things as well. So I, I could see that happening in the future, but there's probably other ways to design it as well. Definitely. I, I wanted to go back to sort of like, I guess, pre pre integration with the the broader business. So you mentioned some of the dependencies earlier and navigating working through dependencies with other team members. I guess, how do you advocate for some of those priorities from other folks as you're in sort of this incubator phase? Yeah, it's funny. It almost feels like a parallel to the conversation we're having about, you know, building analytics and that you have to have a picture of what the future looks like. I think the same thing is true for your product lines that you need to sort of, you can't anchor on where I'm going to be in six months or a, a year. You need from the executive team to agree what role does Grammarly business play in the future of the whole company? And so when you think out onto the five-year horizon, the ROI calculation is a lot easier than thinking about the ROI calculation this quarter or this year. And so I think that's one of the things that has been super, super important is just understanding what does the future vision look like? And then you can agree that part of the ROI calculation has to be strategic investment in the future. It can't just be near-term revenue. That's basically how, how we end up having some of those conversations. Wherever possible, if there's something, I guess it helps us that we're building Grammarly business and also Grammarly for developers. So sometimes Grammarly business and Grammarly for developers can come together and say, ooh, we actually both have a shared problem that maybe the consumer business doesn't have. Now we have two data points advocating for a project because we will both need this thing that needs to be built. And that makes it even stronger. So it's an interesting, I don't know if every company should be building two startups within a startup at the same time, but I think it's benefited us a lot that there's a lot of interesting overlap and shared concerns that help us think about the broader architecture and how to support multiple lines of business, maybe break some assumptions that we've always had as a one product company. And that's been hugely valuable. If you're able to, I would love to understand maybe some of the assumptions that have been revisited uh, as a result of, of working on some of these new product areas. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm trying to think about it at a high level. Maybe I'll mention a couple and, and we'll, we'll, you, you can tell me which one might be interesting. Totally. 
as an example, sort of maybe just even think about consumers. When you're selling to consumers, the end user and the buyer are the same person. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need to separate anything from an account perspective about the user and the buyer. And in Grammarly Business, of course, you've got the buyer, the admin, the manager, the team lead, security and IT, and the end user. And there's all these additional constructs and all of them need different permissions. And so one of the things that we maybe early on had a concept of authentication, but not authorization. What were you allowed to do? Because if you were authenticated, you were allowed to do all the things. And now we need to break that apart and have multiple kinds of role-based access control, different kinds of permission. And so now authorization becomes a much more sort of fine-grained concept as opposed to being synonymous with authentication. So that's an area that we exploring out into roles and permissions or even thinking about configuration within one end user is maybe part of a group in Grammarly business, but also part of a company. And so maybe there are certain things around our suggestions that need to be more nuanced or tailored or personalized per user, depending on their context of being in a team or in an organization. So there's just been whole new kinds of services around configuration that customize how suggestions are shown to people that is totally different because before you just, there's one set of things, it was the premium feature set or something like that. Definitely. That, I think that definitely highlights like the whole, the paradigm for sort of the enterprise world is, it, it seems so different in terms of the complexity of considerations you have to have in terms of the whole holistic experience. And we, we're navigating that a, a little bit outside of ELC. We also are, are building a, a virtual community platform called Gradual. Mm-hmm. And it's more oriented towards like companies or, or large scale communities. And like that whole area of authorization and permissions is is definitely been something that's been tricky. And then on top of that, then if you're trying to layer your community, it's like you have sort of the enterprise users, but then you also have within the community. So it's like almost a double stack layer of layering permissions. And so I resonate with the complexity there for sure. Definitely. That's what makes it fun though. I love that. Yep. <laughs> I wanted to talk about sort of like the the end path. So I guess assessing for success or making a determination to cancel or wind down. And so I was wondering if there were certain signs or signals that you look for that you consider as like, this is moving us along a successful pathway versus like signs or signals that may indicate that this should be something to, to wind down. That is a great question. Not one that I had actually thought about before. I mean, I guess maybe at the, not at the whole product level, thinking about at the feature level, Mm -hmm. I think it has been interesting to really think about what defining what success looks like. And then, you know, going in with a strong hypothesis uh, about that. And so we have built several Grammarly business features. They are very valuable, but they might actually be different. Each feature might be a different amount valuable to different functions within an organization. And so maybe give an example, the style guide feature that we built is hugely successful, the customer success organization, marketing, where you really want to make sure that you are consistent with how you are talking about things, that you're consistent talking with customers and, and things like that. And so just really thinking about well, what is the measure of success? Does style guide need to be used by every person in a company to consider it a successful feature? Or is it okay if it just has super 
domain usage within a particular function and therefore valuable to the whole company because those functions work better with style guides and that it's okay if, you know, for example, snippets is widely used by some other team and they find enormous value in that. So I think thinking about measures of success or thinking about leading indicators of feature usage and which of those have an implication to long-term renewals or expansions of accounts and maybe engagement by itself is not the, the thing that you need to worry about, but where it ends up being an indicator that the overall the customer is getting a huge amount of value from the product. I think the understanding like what does success look like is super helpful. I was wondering, I always struggle with thinking about leading indicators and anticipating that on the front end. And it's something like I desire, like I I deeply desire to want to have more leading indicators because it seems more controllable. And it's ultimately the thing that drives your, your the positive outcome you're looking for. How did you think about determining the leading indicators that you all used? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it has been a little bit of sort of hypothesis and gut instinct, but then also working with our data science team who are incredible when we can say something really broad, like, what are the kinds of things that lead to people renewing? <laughs> and they can go and dig in and say, well, let's see, you know, when when did people convert from their trial to paid? Or when did they invite users? Or when did they set up style guides? Or how many style guides are in use? And they actually just have a really broad purview to go look at all the things around what is the contribution of these features to renewals and expansions or how quickly a team expands. Does that uh, in the first month or that you invite users, what does that mean about long-term success? So honestly, I think we we have a little bit of hypothesis and gut instinct, and then we use our have our data science team help us put real numbers behind it to, to give us confidence. And certainly sometimes we've had hypotheses that you know, okay, yeah, that that wasn't as good a leading indicator as we thought, but here's another one that we had no idea ends up being uh, really, really valuable. So we've got a few rapid fire questions. If you're ready to close down our conversation with a few of those. Sounds good. I'm ready, I think. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I like to do a morning walk every day before anyone needs me, before my family is awake. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts and some of my favorite ones are 99% Invisible, Code Switch, Freakonomics Radio, and Hidden Brain. And I think they probably all have this theme of discovering something that's not obvious and giving you a new perspective or a new way of looking at things. I just, I find all of those things fascinated and it, it sort of feeds my my constant curiosity. Great examples. I used to listen to 99% Invisible a bunch. One of the episodes that has stuck with me is about the hidden cow tunnels in Chicago and this whole quest to discover them and how that shaped the entire layout of the city. So uh, yes, the discovery of the hidden things, such a cool, such a cool theme. They had another one about the fireman's pole and it was also based in Chicago. Also (laughs) super fascinating about where that came from. I loved it. (laughs) So great. You've shared a ton of great methodologies with us. I was wondering if there was a tool or a methodology that's had a big impact on you. Yeah, I think certainly Shape Up, I know we talked about that one. I think that one just, it was like a breath of fresh air. It felt like what Agile should actually be. It created focus. It helped us collaborate, got end product and design in those conversations super early, which I really care about. And then that that focus on shipping. So I've used it for two different projects now at Grammarly, and I just love it. For me personally, I use uh, Todoist and Sansama to help me focus on what's most important every week, every day. It's a, a constant struggle. There's way more to do than I actually have time for. I love the, the focus on what's most important. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? 
Yeah, I think it's honestly the role of artificial intelligence uh, and communication assistance in particular in helping create more equitable and inclusive workplaces. It's actually one of the reasons I came to Grammarly. I feel like this huge platform for helping people understand the impact of their words and when they're unintentionally being insensitive or creating conflict and shining a light and maybe helping educate on other perspectives and, and how their words might be perceived. I just think there's a huge opportunity there. I love that trend. I think that's going to be really, really exciting. I'm just starting to sign up for for some of these like generative generative text. Like there's a, a, a few different ones popping up. So I'm really ex- excited to see what you all do with at Grammarly as well in that space. For sure. What's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? Honestly, I think it's the lunch meetings when I'm in person. I actually just love the casual conversations at lunch, people telling stories, telling jokes. You find out all these interesting things you have in common with people. You can ask silly questions and just, I don't know, it's just really, really fun. Those chance encounters are awesome. And I, I just feel so much closer to everyone when we can just have a little bit of fun together. That's great. The final question to to wrap us up, Heidi, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? Certainly a recent one that's been resonating is don't think, just do. I hope everyone has seen Top Gun Maverick. It was so, so good. And uh, I just think it's a great reminder to not overthink things and that it's okay to just go with your gut sometimes and, and sort of move quickly as opposed to getting into analysis paralysis. So I, I love that. Don't think, just do. I think a, a very thematic way to close off a conversation oriented around startups within a startup. Um, so Heidi, thank you so much for an incredible conversation and for sharing just so many great stories and examples and ways to think about approaching this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.